You're listening to this week's episode of Forgotten Songs, the show where we shed new light on obscure and long-lost musicians and learn more about the history of New Zealand music. I'm your host, Amy Louise Chen, and this program, as always, is brought to you by Radio Aotearoa 88.6 FM. Today's episode looks into the life and work of outsider artist Clara Wilson, whose self-recorded release in 1966, popularly known as Apocalypse Songs, became one of the first underground cult hits in the New Zealand music scene, predating the cassette culture of the late 70s by over a decade. She's one of those artists that you almost never hear brought up as part of the, uh, the general consciousness, the media, but artists know her. You ask a New Zealand musician for his or her influences and, you know, She's actually influenced a lot of the indie scene, the punk scene. I spoke to Phil Hedemeyer, music historian and author of Some Thoughts That Are New, Musical Counterculture in 1960s Aotearoa. I decided to include a chapter on Clara when I was writing the book. And to be honest, I was really surprised that she hadn't been covered in much academic analysis in the past. Really? Yeah. You know, I'm searching through the library and I'm counting myself lucky if I find her mentioned anywhere. A sentence here, a sentence there... She doesn't get the attention she deserves. I hadn't heard of her at all until I picked up your book. Right, right. And because of the way she kind of just appeared, released this one album, and I'm saying released with quotation marks because it's unlikely she ever meant to put Apocalypse songs into circulation, and then disappeared. We're lucky that there's any information out there about her at all. You say in the book that she only ever performed live once. As far as I can tell. And I did a lot of research. There's a listing in Playdate magazine, which is like the groove guide, or rip it up of its day, Mm. saying she had one live show at Cafe Mantis in Auckland in September 1966. You know, uh, double billing with a couple other new alternative acts. But that's it. And then, of course, she dies less than a year later. Right, and she's only... 28. Yeah, 28. Outlived the 27 Club by something like six weeks. It's tragic. Yeah. But I think her early death, or at least her reclusivity, did contribute to the whole, the myth-making surrounding her and her work in the scene. I mean, can you imagine being a young musician? You know, some kid who's heard the Beatles and the Stones, and you've bought a guitar and you're jamming out in your garage and someone hands you this tape called Apocalypse Songs and says that the woman who made this music wrote the thing, recorded it herself with a Philips cassette recorder, which was, you know, still very new technology at the time, played one show and disappeared. (laughs) Musicians love a creepy story. (laughs) Then, of course, you listen to it, and it's like nothing you've ever heard before. She didn't sound anything like the popular music at the time. She doesn't sound anything like the music we have today either. Yeah, yeah, true. It's not that she was ahead of her time. I prefer to think of Clara as being outside of time. Mm. She was riding on a completely different plane to everyone else, everyone around her. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying she was better than them, but you know, it's apples and oranges. So, were you one of those kids jamming out in the garage? (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly. Uh, I was a teenager with a big crush on one of those kids. I thought I might be able to get him to like me if I made him some particularly awesome (laughs) mixtapes. That's adorable. (laughs) I wasn't very successful, but he did end up giving me a tape in return with a whole bunch of music on it that I still love today. You know, that's where I first heard the Jesus and Mary chain, uh, Iggy Pop, the chills. And the final track on that mixtape was this bizarre lo-fi song, which I now know is My Blood is Full of Salt sung by this strange woman with a voice like Kate Bush on acid. I played that song over and over, trying to figure it out. 
also Apocalypse Songs. You use this name to refer to Clara's album, but it wasn't called that originally. Am I correct? Yes. This was the name given to the originally untitled cassette by fans back in the 70s. Although, as I said, the tape was passed around starting from back in 66 when it was released. It really flourished in the late 70s, early 80s, when the whole DIY punk cassette culture moment was happening, Mm. um, both in New Zealand and overseas. And from this point onward, it's universally known as Apocalypse Songs, but it got the name as far back as 72, 73. Rolls off the tongue better than untitled Clara Wilson cassette. Any idea why they started calling it that? Well, you've heard the thing. (laughs) Clara had this obsession with apocalyptic imagery. There's a lot of death and fire and drownings and, you know, all sorts of doomsday type stuff. Plus, it has been pointed out that she makes use of a lot of biblical concepts. References to revelations, the death of Christ, transubstantiation. Oh, there's even this group of internet crackpots, some forum I found that's been dead since like 2004, who think her lyrics predict the future. Like that the world is going to end. Yeah, but they get more specific than that. It's like, have you ever looked into the whole Paul is dead theory that's floating around on the internet? Uh, I think I've heard of it. There's this long-standing theory that Paul McCartney died in a car crash in uh, 1964 and was replaced by the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike competition. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. So, so people, you know, they look for coded references to Paul being dead in all the Beatles songs. Uh, oh, their album covers. Like apparently Paul is dressed as a corpse on the cover of Abbey Road. They play the songs backwards and swear you can hear messages, you know, I buried Paul. Uh, they compare pictures of real Paul and fake Paul. It's bullshit. Can I say that? That's fine. <laughs> Total bullshit. But now we've got the internet. They can collate all these clues in one place. And it's kind of fun looking through the websites, you know, trying to convince yourself that it's real. Right. So, so yeah, this forum. These people believe that some of Clara's songs predict specific New Zealand disasters. Like natural disasters. Yeah, yeah. And things like uh, the Wahine disaster, mm. the Mount Erebus crash. You know, they look at... I heard a clarion calling, and they point to the references to an airplane, white mountains, and burning, and they say, oh, this is clearly about a plane crashing into a mountain. I take it that you're not convinced by any of these theories. No. (laughs) I mean, it's easy to twist a meaning out of it all in hindsight, but this stuff, her lyrics, are just so open for interpretation. You could make it about anything. I'm less interested in her lyrics, actually, and more in the, the, the composition. It's so personal. What do you mean? Unique, I guess. It's fascinating. This is what I love about outsider music and uh, outsider art okay, generally. Can you define that for anyone who, who doesn't already know that? Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Outsider music basically refers to music made by people who aren't part of the music industry, uh, maybe don't have any formalized knowledge of music theory, etc., etc. Uh, it's kind of grassroots, DIY. In Clara's case, from what we know, she's entirely without training, without any real technical musical knowledge. She doesn't really seem to be influenced by popular music in any way, and this gives her the opportunity to make something that's entirely her own. How would you describe Clara's sound? Her sound? Um, It's kind of folk music meets plain song meets contemporary art music with a bit of psychedelia. Sung by an amateur opera singer. Accompanied by a child. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I could keep throwing genre names at the wall and seeing if they stick. If you oh, I think we could. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> Don't bury me in earth. 
used back then was plain, which I know isn't very uh, PC now, but that's what she was. Judith Wilson, Clara's younger sister. She was. She was plain. A little mousy. Shy. I don't remember her ever having a, you know, a boyfriend. Well, unmarried at 27 was a bit more uh, unusual then. You know, you hit 25 and you were an old maid already, (laughs) which is ridiculous, but that's how it was. Judith is 10 years younger than her sister. The two of them were part of a family of six kids. Clara was the oldest, then Alan and Roy, both of whom live in Australia now. Anne, who passed away last year, Kenneth, who died in childhood, and finally Judith. At 71, she is vivacious, chatty, and doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to family history. So were you also? Shy. (laughs) I said cheerio to husband number four last year, love, and so shy I am. (laughs) Number four. Marry early and marry often. Someone said that. (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) Might have been Liz Taylor. I don't know. But no, to answer your question, I was uh, I was the polar opposite of my sister. Oh, my poor parents, they were not equipped to raise a teenage girl in the 60s. Sounds like you were a handful. I was a monster <laughs> running after all the boys. But no, Clara worried them too. She was rebellious in her own way. How so? Um, I think it worried my parents that she was living away from home, that She was living by herself. She found herself a job up in Auckland. Bookkeeping for some lawyer or tax accountant, I don't recall. She was smart. She'd always done well with her studies. She could have gone on to varsity, I think. But she chose a commercial course instead, did bookkeeping and secretarial study. She wanted to live in a city. Littleton was too... She didn't like the way everyone was in everyone's business. The way it is when you're in a smaller town. Cities are big. Anonymous. They were worried she was going to get into some kind of trouble? Parents worry. (laughs) Not that I've ever had any kids of my... But I can imagine what it must be like, even when they're grown. My mother and father were old-fashioned, too... Didn't like the idea of a young woman living um, on her own. Would have liked it if she'd stayed at home, married some boy and volunteered for the church fate. Well, you can't always get what you want. been interested in music growing up? Not particularly. Our father played violin, so we all had to take lessons, you know, once a week after school. Mum and Dad made us go to some old lady down the street from six years old to ten. And when each of us reached ten, they asked us, do you want to uh, keep on learning violin or not? I think all of us said no. They were hoping one of you would be into it. (laughs) No, no, no. It, it wasn't a big music house. I mean, I mean, of course, Clara liked music, you know, just the songs that were on the radio. But she didn't have a record collection or 
I don't know, she wasn't the kind to be going out to see bands and singing in clubs. Johnny Mathis. I just remembered that. She quite liked him. When did you first hear that your sister had become this uh, posthumous musical icon? Uh, Anne told me just after uh, Clara. Some man from the music store where she'd been recording her songs showed up at Anne's house looking for her. You know, he'd gotten the address from her old landlord or someone. Asking about Clara, why he hadn't seen her for a while. Told Anne that he wanted her to record another tape. Anne had to break the news to him. Then I didn't think about it until this man called me wanting to research some book. Phil Hedemeyer? Yeah, that's him. I asked Phil to explain further. So how did Clara's music get out to the uh, to the masses in the first place? Okay, so this is the brilliant, weird thing. Clara is, I don't know, struck by inspiration, mid-1966, and she decides that she is going to record her stuff. So she buys this cassette recorder, some tapes. Which were usually used for dictation at the time rather than music, right? Exactly, exactly. Very crude. In terms of music recording, they were pretty much children's toys. Crappy quality, you know, no editing capabilities whatsoever. She gets this recorder and she thinks, right, well, now I need to get myself an instrument because she doesn't actually uh, have a piano or anything. And so she ends up going to this music store in town Mm. and basically asking the guy who runs the place if she can pay him to let her come in and record in the store after hours. Using his instruments. Right. And the guy... His name's Fred McVitie. Is like, sure, but I'm going to stay in the shop while you do this. You know, he doesn't want to just hand over the keys to some stranger in case she, you know, walks off with a piccolo in her purse. <laughs> and so while she's recording this music, Fred is listening. She comes in every night for about an hour to rehearse. And Fred can tell she's kind of teaching herself how to play the piano. You know, Fred actually uh, passed away in the late 90s. But I spoke to his son for the book, and he told me, the son told me, that Fred said it was like she had the songs already in her head, but she was struggling to work out how to uh, get them into the instruments. I'm not sure I totally understand what you Do you play piano? No. So, imagine you have a song stuck inside your head, yeah? And you go over to a piano and you try to play that song. Right. You're fumbling around trying to work out, am I flat? Am I sharp? The thing that Fred found so interesting was that Clara seemed to be doing that. Not, you know, jamming, noodling around trying to find a melody. The music was already in her head and she just needed to get it out. So anyway, she comes in every night for weeks, months. And at the end of it, she sets up her little recorder and she records six songs on that tape. And once she's done, she gives it to Fred. She just gives it away? She tells him, please listen. And then she's back in the shop the next night, you know, starting from scratch, teaching herself new songs. So there's another tape. She never got to record the second one. But meanwhile, Fred is playing the tape to all the young, you know, hippie kids that come into the shop and they're all fascinated by it. Fred's son reckons that he was the one who got Clara her Cafe Mantis gig. And then a few years down the line, when the technology's there, he starts making copies of it. Fred McVitie is really... Uh, The guy who made it all happen. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell me about when you found out Clara had passed away? Hmm. Okay. I remember Mum got off the phone with someone. She told me to sit down. Then she said we needed to go up to Auckland tomorrow for Clara's funeral. So I should take the day off school. It was a way of telling me. Oh, my God. Very typical with my mother. She didn't... She wasn't very good with emotions, feelings. Dad drove us up. We went on the ferry. When we got there, it was a depressingly quiet funeral. I felt bad for Clara because, you know, it was the three of us. Anne, who she'd been staying with when she... My older brothers didn't fly in, just sent condolences from Melbourne. Anne's husband, Peter, he was a military man. He was off in some exotic place the whole time Clara was staying with Anne, I think. Sent a card. Then just a few workmates from her secretarial job, you know. I mean, it's not like you can have a happy, nice funeral. But this was particularly... And afterwards, my parents never really spoke about her. Neither did my sister. And at the time, did anyone know about her music? No. No. Anne might have, but all we knew was that Clara was in a bit of a rough spot. Then we heard from the hospital. A rough spot? We knew she'd moved into Anne's spare room, and from what I knew, she wasn't going to work anymore. And Anne told me later that she'd been refusing to leave the house. My parents didn't ask any questions because, well, it was embarrassing. How was it you embarrassing? Know, they were from the World War Two generation. Mental uh, problems. Suicide. They weren't things that normal families dealt with. If you could sweep it under the rug, then you did. Right. You go out there, you talk to anyone my age or older and ask them about their families and you'll find a million stories the same. No one talked about it. Neither Judith nor Phil could point to a specific moment when Clara's decline began, but the fact of her withdrawal from society and subsequent death continued to loom over my understanding of her career and musical output. When did Clara stop being able to function independently, going to work, living alone... Was her sudden interest in musical composition connected to her agoraphobia, her mental instability? Or was Clara's music merely one expression of an internal struggle she'd been wrestling with for many years? I was still trying to decide on the best way to accurately summarise Clara's life and legacy when we received a phone call at the studio. Hello. Is this um, Radio Aotearoa? Rob Milden of Fitianga called the studio after seeing an advertisement calling for members of the public who encountered Clara or Apocalypse songs during its heyday. I asked him to describe his experience. So did you attend quite a few uh, gigs and performances at Cafe Mantis? Well, I saw many, many shows there. Every Saturday night I'd come down. You were interested in local music? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I thought of myself as, as a rock and roller. Spent a lot of money on records. Mm, had a little band myself with some mates. No bloody good, but we had fun. This is um, this was when I was at uh, Auckland University. Had you heard of Clara Wilson before you went to see her show? No, no. I went every Saturday. Mm, didn't matter what was on the bill. Went down for a dance. Of course, 
You weren't supposed to drink in a, in a dance hall, but at Mantis, they used to pour a tipple in your coffee. And the cops usually looked the other way. They set it out so you'd have three or four acts on each night. I think Miss Wilson was on um, second. Can you talk about what happened the night Clara performed? My brother, Stuart, and I, we were, we were planning to go out, get some beers, then head to Mantis once the bar closed. Stuart wanted to go and play billiards, but I insisted on Mantis because the Clevedon Airs were headlining, so we went out. We were there early. It was quiet, maybe eight, nine people sitting at tables around the stage. I don't um, remember too clearly who was on first. Might have been a folk type thing. You know, some guy who wanted to be Bob Dylan. Had a lot of them at the cafe. Whoever it was, Stuart was getting restless. He he wasn't into um, any kind of music you can't dance to. And the next on, of course, was your girl. Clara Wilson. She came out, she had an unusual face, lopsided a little, eyes too mm, small for their sockets, had on some dress. She didn't look like most of the people you saw on a Saturday night. Um, she, she wasn't cool. I know what you mean. I'm not saying that to be unkind. She sat down at the piano and started singing. She had a, a witchy voice. A witchy? You know, high, like a cat singing, or maybe more like a, I don't know. I've not heard another person sing like that. It burrowed into you like insects under your skin. Gave me the shivers. I wasn't sure if it was really music or not. I looked over at Stuart. He had this expression of, hmm... Horror isn't the right word. Unease. Panic, maybe. And then suddenly she stopped and I looked back at the stage and I saw her slumped over the piano, shaking. Some kind of seizure? Well, that's what we thought. Some kind of seizure. And Eddie, he's the guy who runs the place, comes over, tries to catch her as she slips off the piano stool and falls onto the ground. But she's just lying on the floor, convulsing. Everyone's panicking. Um, I think someone starts to call an ambulance, and then suddenly she gets up, and the place goes dead silent. And she starts walking very, very slowly toward our table, muttering. I could only make out a bit. Little snatches of, um... This is now... Is this, is this a one, is this, um, oh, just jumbles, nonsense, barely audible. I'm watching this, and I don't know what's going through my head, but it doesn't occur to me to move or um, speak to her. I just sit there. And then, once she gets to our table... Very slowly, very slowly, she reaches out both hands to Stuart, my brother, and she puts each hand on his shoulders. She leans in and kisses him on the forehead. And then she looks at him. She just looks into his eyes for a, 
Oh, for a solid few seconds. And Stu doesn't look away. And then she collapses. Bam. The whole place comes back to life. Eddie closes the cafe. The ambulance turns up. We all get told to go home. Go home? What? I look behind me as I go out the door, and Eddie has her, um, he's, he's propping her up in a chair, trying to wake her up for the doctors. Stu and I walk back through town. We ask him if he wants to play billiards after all, but he says no. He still seems unsettled, mm, a bit shaken. We walk all the way up Dominion Road, not talking to each other. We get to the intersection where it's left to my place, straight ahead to his. And I say, see ya, and he says, night, and I head on. It's the last time I saw my brother. What? He didn't make it back home. Car hit him as he crossed the street. Driver wasn't drunk. Headlights were on. They said it was a freak accident. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. It was a long time ago. Do you... Do you think it was a freak accident? I once read in the paper about three babies, all of whom were delivered on the same night in a small town in um, Alabama by the same midwife. The midwife was sure that there was some kind of um, hex on the babies. And she felt this premonition that one would die before her 16th birthday, another before her 21st, and the last before her 23rd. So it turned out that um, the first baby, she ended up dying in a motorboat accident the day before she turned 16. The second one, oh, she reached her 21st birthday. But before she made it to the actual hour of her birth, she walked into a pub for a celebratory drink and got shot by a stray bullet. And the last girl, she was, she was so worried about the curse that she ended up dropping dead two days before she turned 23. Doctor said it was heart failure. Those are all freak accidents. Stuart's death was a freak accident. But I couldn't, um, I couldn't say for certain if his experience at the cafe, if his experience hadn't been related in some way. I think he knew that's what I'm saying. I think he knew as soon as she looked into his eyes
After hearing this incredible story from Rob, I began to re-examine some of the things I had discussed and had summarily dismissed with Phil Heremeyer. Phil had rejected the idea that Clara's lyrics could have been more than they first appeared. In fact, he had barely thought that they were worthy of close analysis at all. But I find it difficult to accept that Clara's obsession with dark, occasionally even disturbing imagery has no relation to her withdrawal from public life and the suicide that apparently followed. What inspired Clara Wilson? Was her music a symptom of a pattern of mental instability? Or the cause of it? And as Rob Milden suggested, is it possible that she knew something that the rest of us did not? Chen, and today's program was produced as always by Radio Aotearoa 88.6 FM. Join us next week for another look into the obscure and long-lost musicians from New Zealand's lesser-known history. 